I'm a passionate pragmatist. I see the animals, I look into their eyes. I've been around the world and I've forced myself to see factory farming in all of its guises on different continents in different countries and seeing the suffering in the animals' eyes haunts me and motivates me at the same time. I know that more people are eating more meat than ever before. I know that I've got to find ways to turn that around. I've got to find ways of helping the animals that are trapped in this system right here, right now. And I can't stand on my own sense of purity, if you like, because that won't change things. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. Joining me today is Philip Limbry, an author, a photographer, a speaker, and a global CEO of animal welfare charity, Compassion and World Farming. Philip has a long history with animal advocacy. He volunteered at the Royal Society of Protection for Birds after leaving college and went on to work as a campaigning officer and subsequently campaigns director at Compassion and World Farming. During his time there in the 1990s, he played a key role in the campaign to ban battery cages in the UK. He left Compassion World Farming in 2003 to work as campaign director of World Animal Protection before returning in 2005 as CEO. Compassion World Farming has campaigned for a number of welfare issues and a recent example is banning pig farrowing crates in the United Kingdom. Philip has written a number of books on animal agriculture. His first, which was named Farmageddon, The True Cost of Cheap Meat, looked at the huge ethical cost of modern industrial animal farming. The book received huge praise, including from actor Joanna Lumley, who described it as a devastating indictment of cheap meat and factory farming. His second book, named Dead Zone, Where the Wild Things Are, explored the impact animal agriculture is having on wildlife loss. His latest, 60 Harvests Left, was published last year. It looks at the ways our food system is changing the climate and biodiversity crises. It's also a call to action and details how we can change our ways to change the world. I'm Robbie Lockie and this is the PBN Podcast. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Philip. What a pleasure to finally sit down with you and hear your story. Great to be here, Robbie. I'm excited and great to be speaking to all your listeners. Plant-based news, fantastic. Compassion in World Farming was founded way back in the 60s by a dairy farmer, Peter Roberts, who was concerned about the rise in factory farming, keeping animals caged, crammed and confined in conditions where they can't stretch their wings or even turn around. Not only is it the greatest source of animal cruelty on the planet, it's also a major driver of wildlife declines. It causes human hardship, disease, deforestation, soil erosion, marine pollution, and drives species as diverse as jaguars, elephants, and penguins to the brink of extinction. From those early beginnings, we've gone on to grow into an international organization, mobilizing people to put pressure on governments across the world, working with the United Nations, and to persuade more than a thousand companies, some of the biggest brand names in the world, to make game-changing commitments to a better way of keeping animals. So before we talk about all the incredible things you've done in recent years, let's go back in time and tell me your vegan story. How did you hear about the plant-based lifestyle and veganism? Where did this all begin for you? 
Well, to be honest, it all began way back in the early 80s when I was a volunteer on a nature reserve for the RSPB. And I was there with other volunteers. And I remember the lead volunteer unpacking the food that we were going to be eating that week. And I said to him, goodness, you've got the sum total of a vegetarian diet there. And he said, yeah, that's right. And that's what you're going to be eating. Uh, so that was my first moment, that first while of eating vegetarian food. And it was, it was one of those things, a real eye-opener. I was there a fortnight. By the end of that time, not only was I still alive, having not <laughs> eaten meat, but I was enjoying it. Mm. So I went vegetarian. And uh, then I got to learn more about uh, how we treat animals and how that impacts on the environment and all our lives. And uh, I went vegan in 1986 and uh, started a local organization that was campaigning for animals, animal protection, and eventually ended up with Compassion and World Farming in 1990. I got hired as a campaigns assistant. Going back to that time where you discovered veganism, where you discovered the idea of being vegan, what was it like back then? Because obviously the vegan community or the vegan movement today seems very well organized. There's lots of organizations, there's platforms like Plant-Based News disseminating this information globally. But back in the 80s, there wasn't a lot, was there? I mean, I think the only thing might have been some pamphlets or leaflets or something on the internet that may have been more like a cry for help than anything else. So like, what was available? And how did you connect the dots between vegetarianism, which is obviously an ancient tradition, and veganism as a philosophy, which is quite modern. Well, having gone vegetarian, I started to learn more about the issues, and I read Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, and that opened my eyes. I, I read another book, Fettered Kingdoms, and that turned me vegan. So it really was a journey of exploration. And how did we cope back then? Because, of course, <laughs> we came together in, in our local groups and we helped each other. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? The local health food shop would be the place to go for soya milk and things of this nature. Was that the powdered one or the one that you... Thankfully, they had got to the point where it was liquefied right. at that time. But in the 80s, veganism was about going without. Veganism was about not being understood. People, when you said that you're vegan, they thought that you were talking about Star Trek and Vulcans. <laughs> and I remember being involved in the vegan society in the early 90s and one of the national newspapers talking about it being the Flat Earth Society of Food. Oh, wow. It was a very different... Fringe uh, community. It was. Mm. And, but there were some great products. I remember Sizzles, which was a, like a, a, a powdered mix that you put water to and then fry and make bacon-flavoured burgers and burger mix and sauce mix. And guess what? These were produced by an innovative company called Direct Foods that was started around 1970. And so it was serendipity, I guess, that in 1990, I met the founder of that company, Peter Roberts, who was also the founder of Compassion in World Farming. So Compassion in World Farming's history is steeped in the plant-based product manufacturing. In this age of pandemic, climate and nature emergency, it's so important that we find a better way of producing food, that we build back better so no one is left behind. And we can do that through regenerative 
agroecological means of farming, where we bring animals back to the land, where we integrate them with crops, where they're moving around rotationally, fertilizing the land naturally, so that we don't need all the chemical pesticides that are killing the countryside, and where animals can have a decent life, free from cages and confinement, where they can enjoy fresh air and sunshine. I've seen regenerative farming in action. Innovative farmers bringing landscapes to life, creating great food and having a thriving livelihood too. I've seen this in Mexico where I've walked with pasture-based dairy farmers. Argentina where cows have been out on lush grass. In America, Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. He used to be a factory farmer and he turned his back on it to put his animals back on the land. And then there's Tim May in England, who brought soil back to life on his farm by introducing grazing animals. And the great thing about this regenerative, restorative agriculture is that it doesn't need lots of money spent on it for expensive antibiotics, equipment, or chemicals. That is the way to build a real future for people, animals, and the planet. Let's join hands together in global action to build back better. So for those that don't know, could you tell us a bit about Compassionate World Farming? Because obviously veganism seems at odds with Compassionate World Farming because the vegan philosophy is the exclusion of animals in any form, whether it's farming, entertainment, travel, fashion, transport. It's a kind of, it's a moral baseline, which is quite strict in its definition that we don't use animals, abuse animals, or make use of them in any way. But then we have farming over here on, on the other side, which doesn't seem to be compassionate, the way that we treat animals, the way we lock them in these huge facilities. Obviously, with the advent of factory farming, it's taken us even further away from this idea of compassion. So for those that don't know, could you give us a little history of Compassionate World Farming and where is it today? Because I imagine it's evolved quite a lot as an organization. It has. Compassionate World Farming has grown into um, one of the leading international farm animal welfare organizations on the planet. We started out being founded by a dairy farmer, Peter Roberts, Peter and his wife, Anna, who gave up dairy farming in the mid-60s because they were concerned about the rise of factory farming. They got a knock on the door from the man from the government, from the man from the ministry, who was encouraging them to set up a chicken factory farm as the way to be profitable. That was the moment when they said, we've got to stop this. We don't like what's going on. Anna was very passionate and Peter was the person who got behind it systematically and got the organization going. It was very much a cottage industry in the 60s and into the 70s. It spawned Direct Foods that was this plant-based innovation company way back then. It's grown it's certainly in the last 30 years. I got involved in 1990. I, I joined as a campaigns assistant, moved through the ranks. I was campaigns director for 10 years. Uh, and now I'm, I'm CEO. We now have moved beyond that cottage industry and we now have offices and personnel in 12 countries on four continents. So various stations across the European Union, headquartered in the UK, also operating in the States, China and South Africa. Sounds amazing. And, and what does the organization actually do? Because obviously it's, as I said, it's got farming in the title veganism does feel at odds with farming sometimes, especially animal farming, because of the practices, whether they are a small holding, or whether they are a factory farm, there is that tension there between vegans and animal farmers. 
you meant you obviously yourself are vegan. Many people at Compassion Wolf Farming are vegan themselves. Is there a tension there between the vision of a future where we have farms that are animal free? Do you see yourselves as like a custodian or a facilitator helping farmers move away from animal agriculture? Be great just to hear a little bit about that because I think there'd be many listeners from around the world who may not have not know about the work of Compassion World Farming and, and actually what its mission is, what its core mission is. Compassion and World Farming's mission is to end factory farming, is to end the biggest cause of animal cruelty on the planet. Sadly, factory farming has come to dominate the way that we produce food, the way that we produce meat, dairy and eggs. And that has got to stop. It's got to stop for the animals. It's got to stop for people. It's got to stop for the planet. So that is our mission, to focus on the here and now of what needs to be done to get us to a new food regime. And our way of moving forward is to be a broad church, is to bring as many people as possible with us on that journey. People connecting with animals at, at the, that basic compassionate level. People connecting with the need to end factory farming for environmental reasons or health reasons. People connecting because actually the future of their children is at stake. Do you feel that when people experience this information about factory farming, especially, which is obviously an extreme form of farming, through that process, they are kind of, I guess, awakened to the idea that animals are sentient, conscious beings that suffer at the hands of human beings. And then is it your hope that they will move away from eating animals? Or is it, you know, how vegan is compassionate world farming? Because obviously, animal farming by its nature is not vegan. So there's a paradox, I guess, that exists. Must be a bit like the RSPCA, for example. The Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which was set up, I believe, by a vegan originally who was thrown out for, don't quote me on this, my history is a little shady on this subject, but he, he was thrown out originally apparently because he was Jewish, but actually because he did not want people eating any animal products or eating any animals. And he was sort of challenged for that. But the RSPCA has evolved and it went on to being something quite different. There's RSPCA should, which are brand products, which in my opinion, prop up ailing consumer confidence in factory farming as a sort of smokescreen. There is this sort of tension between an organization that wants to do good, but then when you look at the actual sort of evidence, it's deeply involved with practices which are not compassionate, not kind. So is there a tension between these two ideologies ever? Do they fight with each other, not just within the organization, but within the sort of the mission? Because it's quite a challenging space to be sitting because you said broad church and it feels like where plant-based news is a lot we're sitting in the middle we don't want to try and please everyone but we do know that there are difficult conversations to be had and that does put people off sometimes but they do need to be had does that make sense it makes perfect sense robbie and you're absolutely right that mm. there are difficult conversations mm. we all need to have difficult conversations mm. if we're going to overcome the tragedy mm. that is factory farming yeah amen to that 80 billion land animals a year are produced every 12 months for our food, be that meat, dairy, or eggs. The vast majority of them in factory farms where they're caged, crammed, and confined for every second of every minute, of every hour of every day. That has to end 
It's not going to end overnight. Factory farming, if anything, has been getting bigger and worse in recent times. We've had a lot of victories. Compassion and World Farming works with more than a thousand companies to commit to move, for example, to cage-free production. And so ending the most gratuitous forms of factory farming. And our work over the last dozen years, we can total up benefits two and a half billion animals every year with better lives. So what we want to see is an end to factory farming. Farmed animals should be free to roam, play in the mud, or even snooze in the straw. But in reality, for many, it's a very different story. Right now, millions of farmed animals in the UK are suffering in cramped cages, unable to carry out their natural behaviours. Each year, over 200,000 British mother pigs are forced to give birth in cages and raise their piglets through bars. And every year, over 16 million hens spend their lives in cages. These animals are sentient beings just like us, capable of feeling fear, pain and distress. In June, the EU Commission committed to proposing legislation that will phase out cages for farmed animals in Europe. But without government action here in the UK, British animals will remain behind bars with no end to the cage age in sight. Please take action to help give these animals a life worth living. Whilst factory farming continues, we want to help the animals that are caught, that are trapped in that system and reduce their suffering here and now as we move to a better future. And I do believe that for all our sakes, we've not only got to move away from factory farming, but we've got to reduce our utter reliance on meat milk and eggs. We've got to reduce our reliance globally on animal products by about 60% by the middle of the century. If we carry on as we are, and, and the hard truth is that more people are eating more meat and dairy today than ever before. It's going up. It's going the wrong way. But if that continues, then our food alone will trigger catastrophic climate change. Hello there. I'm Brian Cox. Our global food system is broken. There are 820 million people across the world facing hunger. Yet a shocking one third of all food produced is lost or wasted between production and consumption each year. Over the past century, we have willingly sleepwalked into a world of accelerating climate and biodiversity emergencies where people, animals, and the planet suffer as a result of a system that is not fit for purpose. We need to find a way out before it's too late. But there is hope to find a pathway to a more positive future where collectively we work together to build a global food system that is sustainable for the sake of humans, animals, and the future of our planet. With it going up so quickly and so many people eating a lot more animal products, I guess this is the difficult question. Should we not be more hardline in our messaging? Because obviously we know that animal agriculture is a leading driver of climate breakdown. Do you ever feel frustrated at the speed in which things are changing? It feels very slow. Like 
our species is not changing fast enough in the way we eat, the way we live, the way we travel. You mentioned the broad church, which is again, like plant-based news, we try to be as appealing to as many people as possible. But I do sometimes, as a vegan, as an ethical vegan, sometimes feel frustrated that I am not able to be more vocal about what I think needs to happen. And there's a real tension in, in me in, in that space because here's me on here on the right where I really want to shout from the rooftops. We need to stop eating animals and killing animals. Full stop. No baby steps, no exceptions, because if we did that, we would see a huge shift in our environment protection of wild species less than four percent of the biomass on our planet now are wild animals the rest are humans cows chickens and pigs and that's only going to get worse so do you ever personally feel that frustration within yourself that you want to be able to speak the hardline truth about what we're doing as a species while at the same time knowing that human beings in our psychology that people don't like to be told what to do they don't like being forced into any kind of lifestyle and it's a real game of cat and mouse for me sometimes that we have to be very skillful in how we speak and how we communicate and how we educate people about this because it's so easy to put people off. It's so easy to turn people the 180 degrees and they go the other way and they want to consume more animal products because they want to, in a way, sort of, I don't know, when, when you say to people, this is how you should live and they say, well, screw you, I, I'm not going to live like that. Who are you to tell me what to do? Do you ever feel that tension in yourself in all the years that you've been doing this? Because you've been a vegan a long time longer time than I have and a lot of people that I know, there must be a part of you that is frustrated that we can't shout from the rooftops and people will just change and, and shift their behavior. There's frustration every single day in that things are not changing nearly as quickly as they need to. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm very clear with the, the title of, of my latest book that time is running out. If we carry on as we are, a child born today, Robbie, a child born today, by the time he, she or they is 18 years old, if we carry on as we are, then there'll be a billion more mouths to feed and a third less soil. We'll have triggered catastrophic climate change and the natural world, the ecosystem, wildlife that we need for humanity's very survival will be down to very small single digits. That is the way we're heading. So we have to change. We cannot continue with the biggest cause of animal cruelty on the planet, factory farming. For all our sakes, it's doing no one any good. So the change will come. Robbie, the only thing I can guarantee is that change is inevitable. And what I believe very passionately is in a broad church approach to a seemingly insurmountable problem. People who are vegans or vegetarians coming together with people who are not, who are maybe looking at eating less and better meat, and dairy coming together. And what I see is that the winds of change starting to, to gather pace. And what I want to do, what I want for us to do is build the biggest sail, if you like, to catch as much of the wind of change and drive it in the right direction for animals. Because our opposition, if you like, the status quo that have got us to this point with their intensive agriculture, with all of the harms that brings to the planet, they want to carry on business as usual with a few tweaks. That cannot happen. 
We must not let that happen. So let's join hands together. It's not about who is the most pure, who is the most right. It is about who can actually help bring about the the compassionate change, the right change for animals, people, and the planet. And that's all of us. Mm. Right, exactly. We all have to work together. Ultimately, we can't force people to change. But if we show people the way, if we show people, it sounds a bit religious, but if you show people the way, you inspire them. And that, again, that's what we do at Plant Based News. We want to inspire people in this change. We want to show them how delicious and tasty and healthy. But we also want them to know, want them to understand the facts that if they consume animal products, they are a part of a, a global system which is causing environmental collapse. And so as long as they are aware of that, they have the opportunity to reduce their animal consumption or if they feel so compelled, completely uh, remove it. A lot of people for ethical reasons, obviously environmental and then of course health. Now, award-winning author Philip Limbury is in the country to promote his new book titled 60 Harvests Left. It's especially relevant to the socio-economic conditions in South Africa because it uncovers how the food industry threatens our world. Limbury looks at the dark side of food production, going behind closed doors and into the boardrooms of industrial agriculture. But he also demonstrates why food and future harvests matter and teaches us how we can restore our planet. He joins us now for a conversation. When I read the title, quite chilling, I have to admit, took it in its literal sense, are there really 60 harvests left? Well, that depends on us. Actually, the scientific evidence does support the fact that if we carry on producing food in an industrial way, which means that animals are taken away from the land, that the soil uh, crops are grown using chemical pesticides and fertilizers in monocultures. If we carry on mistreating the land, then yes, uh, the soils that we have at the moment could be gone within a single human lifetime. No soils, no food, game over. That is why we need to take action toward a nature-friendly way of producing food and farming. Let's move on and talk a bit about your brilliant new book, 60 Harvests Left, How to Reach a Nature-Friendly Future, uh, with this gorgeous cover. I love the little bunny hiding there in the, uh, in the, uh, in the wheat. Tell us a little, about, little bit about what this book is about. What does that mean, 60 Harvests Left? It sounds pretty scary. Thank you, Robbie. And you're absolutely right. 60 harvests left means that if we continue as we are, then we have just 60 years left before the world's soils are depleted or gone. No soils, no food. Game over. That's as simple as that. So it really is a call to arms. It's about how we reach a nature-friendly future. That's the subtitle. And I've couched it deliberately in mainstream terms. I could have written it how we get to an animal-free food culture. But I felt that by rooting it in nature and the need to work harmoniously with nature would help get the message across. Coming back to that 60 harvests left, some people uh, have seen it as a prediction. It's certainly a warning that's been given by the UN, and it's based, as I explore in the book, on a calculation that was made by a professor. Uh, what he did, and I've done the same thing, take publicly available data on the amount of soil in the world, publicly available data on how quickly the soil is depleting, 
it takes more than a, 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 a century to to get soil back. So in terms, in in real terms, soil is a non-renewable resource. And what that calculation says is that sixty years are left in the world's soils. The only trouble with that calculation is that it was made twelve years ago. So we don't actually have that long left. Mm-hmm. These shocking statistics that we are presented with, whether it's the climate crisis or the nature crisis, as some are calling it, they have varying effects on people. Some people are apathetic and others take action. Unfortunately, the more apathetic reaction is the more common reaction. I have read recently that there were people in the late 1800s, 1890, roughly, 1898, in London warning of a potential crisis with the environment, with the onset of the Industrial Revolution. We've had almost, a, well, over a century of warnings and scientists or you know, academics talking about how the planet could be in trouble if we continue to live in a certain way. There's an incredible new document, not documentary. It's a fictional story, but it's very prescient and it's called Extrapolations. It's on Apple Plus. Uh, those who have it, please do watch it. And it's set in 2037, and the story spans 2037 through 2100. And the story is really of what will happen to humanity and what, how the planet will change if we ignore all the science and we ignore all the, the warnings, like the IPCC, the latest IPCC report was pretty shocking. With there being 8 billion people on Earth, all in varying cultures and traditions, it seems like an insurmountable kind of <laughs> journey to get through to be able to awaken and educate so many people. What, in your opinion, is the best way to kind of get to people? In a book like this, when we spoke earlier, said you've been in South Africa talking about the book, do more people need to be getting out there, doing talks, writing books, creating documentaries? What, in your opinion, all the years you've been doing this, are the best ways in which advocates and people who really care about these issues should be using their time effectively to awaken the minds of the masses? I think that there are a whole range of things we can do. The first thing that we can all do is seize the power of our plate. Uh, We have uh, power three times a day to take action, to eat more plants, only plants for those that are looking to do that step. For those that are not ready yet, then more plants, less and better meat and dairy. And by that, I mean looking for pasture-based, free-range and other animal products that are produced with less cruelty, with, with better lives for the animals. But I do think that joining the movement, joining organizations like Compassion in World Farming is a great way to put pressure on those that can accelerate change. So I do believe that big change is going to come and that it has to be driven by policymakers, that we need United Nations to put forward a a global agreement for a better food system, a global agreement to move away from factory farming. We need governments to come on board. We need companies to be part of this. We need the finance sector to mobilize and to only put money in the right kind of change, a regenerative future that is putting back into nature's bank account uh, and is taking the pressure off of the, the, the wildlife, off the nature system that is currently in crisis, taking the pressure off of the climate. All of these things we can do. So get involved in the movement. Join an organization like Compassion World Farming. 
email in, in into our website, ciwf.org, and we'll keep you updated with the latest ways that you can help create change. You mentioned regenerative agriculture. It's a hot and very kind of polarizing subject, especially in the vegan community and in the environmental community. There are those who say, oh, we should all just be eating grass-fed regenerative beef. But then there are others who say that this is just a last-ditch attempt to keep meat relevant. We only have one planet. We don't have enough land for everyone to eat grass-fed beef. What if all 8 billion people were eating regenerative grass-fed beef? What do you say to advocates who meet advocates, I guess, or animal culture advocates who say we need animals to continue farming where there's a veganic movement which shows clearly that it is possible to farm and produce food without a single drop of animal manure or pesticides, artificial pesticides. It can all be done in a plant-based way and at scale that is possible. The vegan society have been advocating this apparently for decades could you talk a little bit about these two worlds and where do you sit in the spectrum between those two spaces? George Monbiot and I were on the same side in an Oxford Union debate in 2018. We were proposing uh, a motion in front of 400 farmers from the largely the industrial agricultural sector. And our motion was that by 2100, meat eating as we know it will be a thing of the past. And I truly believe that will be the case. Scrolling back to today, we see that meat production and consumption is out of control. It's busting planetary boundaries. It's causing immense cruelty to animals. It's causing human health problems. And we need to move away from that. But the momentum is not with us it's still increasing. So one way that I believe we can create change is by harnessing those who want to see things change. So rather than having a divisive tribalism coming together, the different sectors of good, the different sectors of a better way. And that's what I've tried to showcase in my book, that there are regenerative farmers out there who can create a better way, a better world for animals and people and the planet. The plant-based movement is burgeoning and brimming with exciting innovation and is about to, to, to burst uh, into a genuine mainstream. Then we have other innovations coming up, like cultivated meat from stem cells, which really could be, could be the renewable energy version of food people having meat, but without the downsides, no animal harmed here. And then there are other techniques like precision fermentation, where you can produce precise molecules, protein molecules, again, without any animals involved. These are really exciting. So moving away from the tribalism, what I mean by, by that, Robbie, is that there can be a tendency for regenerative farmers to hate vegans and vegans to hate regenerative farmers and for both of them to hate the cultivated meat people and so on and so forth. When actually we're all arbiters of change. We all want to go in the right, in the same direction towards that 2100 by which meat eating as we know it will be a thing of the past. But don't regenerative farmers want to keep eating meat and killing animals? Because obviously I, I, I want to pick you up on your points about regenerative agriculture because obviously it is animal agriculture is at odds with veganism 
and being a vegan, does that not, is that not at odds with your veganism? Even it being mentioned in your book or in, in a way indirectly advocating for it, are you not at odds with your own sort of, because it is a philosophy, it's a life philosophy. Does that, is that not a cognitive dissonance of some sort? Do you not feel, even though I know what you're doing it because it's what's effective, not necessarily what you feel is right. Cause that's again, it's part of my daily life. I want to do what I feel is right and shout from the rooftop. So on the other side, I know I need to do what's effective. Do you feel that? Do you feel that with that odds with your veganism and sort of talking about regenerative agriculture? And I guess some vegans might say in bed with the enemy, <laughs> but you know, do you feel that tension? I know I keep asking you that question and, and I know we're skirting around it, but it, you've been vegan a very long time. So I do imagine your veganism has become has, has has evolved your philosophy has evolved does that tension ever occur within you obviously advocating for the killing of animals so forget about their life that they've lived of course it's great to hear that animals can live a good life but they all ultimately end up on the slaughterhouse floor where they their lives are cut short and again that's what veganism is about we don't we, if we don't need to kill and eat animals why would we if we can live and thrive on a plant-based diet why would we ever take the life of an animal? Whether it had a beautiful life or not seems irrelevant to me, but that is something you must think about. Like it's something that you must have had tensions with over the last few decades of your work. Indeed, it's something I've thought about intensely for 40 years. I'm a passionate pragmatist. I see the animals, I look into their eyes I've been around the world and I've forced myself to see factory farming in all of its guises on different continents in different countries and seeing the suffering in the animal's eyes haunts me and motivates me at the same time. I know that more people are eating more meat than ever before. I know that I've got to find ways to turn that around. I've got to find ways of helping the animals that are trapped in this system, right here, right now. And I can't stand on my own sense of purity, if you like, because that won't change things. It's changed me, it's changed what I eat, and I hope that in having done that, it will have changed some other people too. But we need much bigger change, which means bringing together a range of solutions that can work coherently Moving away from factory farming, getting animals That's out of those one. hellish cages. Yep. Exactly. Mm. It's a big step one. Yep. Get them out of the cages, get them back on the land where they can feel fresh air and sunshine and, and live a better life. Yes, they're still going to be slaughtered at the end of it, but at least for the majority of the time, they can be living a better life. And it's absolutely right that if all of the 80 billion animals that are reared and slaughtered every year were suddenly kept regeneratively. We would not have enough land to put them all. And that is why we have to be really clear that two things need to work together, moving away from factory farming and a big reduction in meat and dairy, far fewer animals, all of them outside. That is where I see the future. And the sweet spot is that by bringing animals back onto the land as part of that mixed regenerative farming, which brings back wildlife, brings back pollinating bees, helps to bring back soil quality, soil health, and all of the living organisms within soil, 
by bringing animals back to the land. They can turbocharge, repair mm -hmm. of the soil and the planet, the, the human part of the planet that depends on the soil. Mm -hmm. So there is this wonderful interim No moment. soil, no vegan food. <laughs> exactly. We all need soil. Mm -hmm. So 95% of our food worldwide comes from the soil. The rest comes from the sea. And it's no use holding out for the for the sea to feed us into the future. Certainly not with fish, because fish are likely to be gone by 2050 in a commercially fisheries sense. And part of that is because a fifth of the world's fish catch is scooped out, ground down into fish meal, and fed animals. to factory farmed animals. Mm. Which what most madness. people don't know. They don't realize that they're contributing to the destruction of the oceans, industrialized aquaculture, which you can learn about in depth by watching uh, the documentary Sea Spiracy, which is available on Netflix, a powerful indictment of industrialized aquaculture and the effect it's having. But going back to your book, I'd love to understand the mechanism for those who don't understand how is the soil affected? Why are there 60 harvests left? What is actually going on? that's causing the damage to our soils. We talk about sort of losing soil. Where is it going? It's not going into space. We live in a sort of Earth is a bubble, isn't it? Floating in space. Crazy. But anyway, it's another subject for another time. <laughs> but how is our soil changing with the way we're farming? And, and you know, how does that lead to this idea that we've got so few harvests left? Well, uh, to understand that, you really have to recognize that there are two, two sides to factory farming. There's the side that most of us are now aware of, uh, where the animals are caged, crammed and confined for their entire lives, uh, which looks like a space-saving idea, doesn't it? But actually isn't, because there is a second side. By keeping them indoors, you have to use vast acreages of land elsewhere to grow their feed. How much feed? Well, enough to feed half of humanity alive today. That's the amount that we feed to factory-farmed animals. And... That feed tends to be grown using factory farm methods, industrial agricultural methods. So it tends to, the, the fields start to get bigger. And as the fields get bigger, so the trees, the bushes and the hedges disappear. And then the chemicals come in, the, the artificial pesticides and fertilizers, chemical pesticides, artificial fertilizers. And what happens then is that the wild flowers that produce the seeds and the insects that are needed by the birds, the bats, the bees, and everything else in the ecosystem, they disappear. The chemicals and the whole intensity means that the life in the soil starts to disappear, and so too does the fertility of the soil. Soil will run away into rivers. It will be blown up in, into the air. So there are two things. Soil disappears and soil degenerates. What do I mean by soil degenerating? Well, to answer that question more fully, we really have to understand what soil should look like. Well, let me tell you a story, Robbie, if I can. My dog, Duke, rescue dog, we're out. We live on a farm, on a, on a, a farm hamlet. So it's not our farm. We have the view, but none of the work. Perfect. And one day we were out and we saw a field being ploughed. And I thought, well, this is an icon. Decades centuries old icon of the countryside and as i was admiring it i realized that actually there was something wrong there were no birds following the plow no gulls looking for a cheeky meal of a worm just as the soil had been upturned and when i looked because it was plowing across a footpath i could see that the soil newly turned there were no worms there were no bugs or beetles there was nothing 
It was sand. There was no nutrient value in there. I could have been walking on the moon. And put it another way, what what should have we have been looking at? Well, that field had no worms. A healthy field with healthy soil that will produce great plant-based foods and other products. Each football pitch-sized patch of soil should have 4 million worms, 13,000 species of life. If you were to decant all of that life and weigh it, it would weigh five tons, the same weight as an elephant. And that is why I believe we need to bring back the elephant to our countryside, to our farmland. Bring back the elephant's weight of biodiversity that should be under every football-sized, football pitch-sized patch of land instead of it just being sand. Now that is what healthy, life-giving soil looks like. That walking on the moon is what the future looks like. Speaking of the future, and this is just your vision of a future, if we carry on the way we are, what is our society and what does our planet look like with no animals, no wild animals, no insects, no birds? We are in the midst of a nature crisis. Species are disappearing left, right and centre. If we accelerate forward to 2100 and we've lost all wild animals, all the vertebrates are gone, pretty much all insects are gone, will we still be here? Can human society still exist if it was just us and farmed animals? In a word, it would look uninhabitable. Humanity relies on the living world around us. We rely on the ecosystem. We are part of the ecosystem. Without those other creatures, without those worms, without the birds, without the mammals, without the flowers and the trees, we're nothing. We're not here. Right. There's an article in The Guardian from a few years ago, and they titled it The Insectopolis, I think, the Insectomageddon, something like that. I can't even say it. But it was a, a, a really scary statistic. Something like 90% of insect populations in the UK have been decimated. Everything feels so fragile. It feels like we're on a knife edge with nature. It feels like any moment the beautiful web that supports human life and all life on this planet will collapse. I mean, in fact, it is already collapsing in many areas. Where is the hope? Your book's obviously got a very stark title, but also there is a, there's a real sense of eco-anxiety in people today. I felt it in my trip to Thailand recently. I was walking along the beaches and everywhere I looked there was plastic. Everywhere. Every inch of the beaches were covered with bottles and cups and Q-tips and straws. You know, a lot of people go along and they every Saturday clean the beach, but sure enough, the next day more plastic arrives. Give us some hope, Philip. Like what is there that is happening today that is showing signs that there is hope for us as a species because it can be very easy to slip into this climate doomism state, which many people talk about, which even though things are bad, it's not helpful because if we don't maintain some sense of hope, there is no future for us. So what's going on around the world today? What do you talk about in your book that can give us a sense of hope that we can change the way we live and eat as a species? There is real cause for hope, and the hope 
starts with our plate, what we put on that plate. And we have that power three times a day to change things. So eating more plants is a big part of creating that hope. The fact that people are recognizing and joining the dots are realizing that food matters to the climate, matters to, to nature, matters to the future for humanity. The way that we treat animals matters to the future of humanity. So, so hope is in recognition of the problem. I always say that the solution starts with recognition. The fact that we're now recognizing these issues as interconnected is a big part. We have to recognize that at the highest level, governments are coming together on a regular basis now to talk about what needs to happen to stave off climate change, what needs to happen to keep the, the biodiversity, rich biodiversity that we all depend on, what needs to happen to stave off future pandemics. And at the heart of all of this lies our food. Uh, and that's the next step in recognition to really get policymakers, the general public, everyone involved to understand that food is central to a livable future. It's starting to happen, Robbie. We need more of it. You asked earlier what we can do. Tell stories. Put the facts across to in relatable ways. Avoid preaching, telling people what they, what they must do, but give them the information so that people can choose a livable future. And that's what I try to do. I try to bring the solutions together. I try to help to unify the movement for a better future. And to me, that movement starts with getting animals out of factory farms. It starts with a big reduction in the number of farmed animals across the world. It starts with giving animals a much better life that can bring back nature and bring back soil health and bring back nutrition. It then moves on to a society that gets a real sense that actually we may not need animal farming at all. That by 2100, we can move to a different place. So with that in mind, would you like to see an end to subsidies for animal agriculture? Would you like to see governments stop subsidizing what is a frankly environmentally destructive uh, industry? Would you like them to, to, to withdraw financial support? Because they receive a lot of support to continue doing the damage that they're doing. I absolutely believe that we should stop subsidizing the promotion of the consumption of animal products. That absolutely has no place in a sustainable today or tomorrow. I absolutely believe that the subsidy regime should be rebalanced, should be retargeted to help us to move away from industrial agriculture, to move away from heavy reliance on animal products. And you're absolutely right. $700 billion of subsidy is given out by governments around the world every year. Um, that's a million dollars uh, every minute. So it's, it's a lot of money going to drive the wrong thing, industrial agriculture, industrial animal-based agriculture. And remember that half the habitable land surface of the planet is growing our food. And of that half, 83% is devoted to animal products. That is the reason why nature is disappearing. But we're being shortchanged, Robbie. Shortchanged not only in the monetary terms, but also in food terms. 
that 83% of our land, of our agricultural land, devoted to animal products, for that we get back just 37% of our protein and 18% of our calories. What that tells you, Robbie, is that we, humanity, are already predominantly plant-based. Now let's go the the, the rest of, of that journey, if you like, and start to really drive down our reliance on animal products and absolutely cut out industrial animal products completely. You mentioned governments. You know, they, Depending on where you live in the world, they have varying um, levels of control on our lives, or some might say interference. The UK conservative government prides itself, I guess, on a nation that it is not a nanny state, uh, telling people what to do and how to live their lives. But one does question whether people should be inspired through government campaigns to eat less meat, to live in a more harmonious way with nature, considering the time that we have left. You see events like COP27, where animal agriculture is hardly mentioned. You see books like the written by Greta Thunberg, where the food system is also barely mentioned. It only seems like The Guardian is the only kind of mainstream organization banging the drum for veganism, banging the drum for plant-based diets, and pointing a finger directly at animal agriculture, shouting very loudly, this needs to change. But governments have this sort of bipolar nature where they are funding animal agriculture and keep it going whilst at the other side saying yes we're, we want to be carbon neutral by is it 2050 what is going on here because it's sort of it seems like there's a lot of lip service happening where governments talk about they go to these big events and they stand on these huge stages and they preach about how they're working towards a carbon free future but at the same time they'll go and sit and have beef at the event the very same day is it just ignorance or is it sort of a sense of short-terminism where people think, well, I'll be dead in 20 years, so it doesn't matter, I don't care. What is going on in the political system? Because the facts are here. We know what's going on. We know the damage animal agriculture is having. It could be up to 18% of greenhouse gas emissions. Some advocates like Dr. Silesh Rao believes it's much higher based on the deforestation, the historic deforestation because of animal agriculture, which is a contentious conversation, which we'll leave for another time. But it's please do read about it if you want to look up Dr. Slesh Rao uh, and his work. What do you say to governments who are clearly behaving in this way? Have you got a strong message for our political leaders? Because we know what needs to happen, but they don't seem to be taking the right measures to make it a reality. Reforming the food system is an absolute must-do for all our sakes. If we look at the Climate Convention, if we look at the Biodiversity Convention, Food Security, UN Agreement, Desertification, UN Agreement, all of those UN agreements where governments are coming together, without reforming food, they will all fail. And we will fail as a society globally. But together. why are they leaving food out? It always just never, from government, from a government perspective, it just never seems to be part of the conversation, at least a big part of the conversation. Is it just that governments are too afraid to talk about food because it involves individual behavior and they're terrified of being that nanny, seeing as that nanny state? Is that what it is? Yeah, it's been, governments and politicians have been slow to react to the need to address the food equation. Part of that is that they've been looking elsewhere at other solutions. Part of it is because there are huge vested interests, huge commercial operations that are there 
telling politicians not to worry about food. But we have to, because if you look at food as a customer of the energy sector, food is the biggest sector driving climate change. About a third of climate emissions are coming from the food sector. And of that, the majority is coming from animal agriculture. Food is also responsible for the use of 70% of our fresh water. Food is also the major driver of the decline in wildlife. And then you add to that the fact that unequivocally it's the biggest cause of animal suffering ever. All of that adds up to the fact that we have to take food seriously. And that is why Compassion in World Farming now is a loud voice in the climate debate in the biodiversity debate, in the halls of the United Nations globally, arguing, insisting that food is on the table, on the agenda. We're starting to get somewhere. We're starting to get some recognition. And as we discussed before, solutions start with recognition. Getting governments to recognize it, then getting governments to act on it is the progression. And that's what we're all about driving forward. Because it's a bit like an addiction. It's a bit like an alcohol addiction. Humanity, I believe, is addicted to eating animals. We have made it part of our culture for, for many thousands of years. But only in recent times, with the advent of factory farming, have we been able to consume animal products three times a day, seven days a week. It's an unnatural way of eating. I mean, it's an appeal to a nature fallacy saying that. But the point is, is that people have this, I guess it's a conistic belief system, carnism coined by Dr. Melanie Joy, who talks about how we, we're born into a system which teaches us that eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary, that we have to do it, otherwise we'll die, which is obviously not true. And we're breaking that cultural system because it's so complex food, isn't it? It's political, it's emotional, it's cultural. It's, there's so many layers to it. And this is why it's such a complicated conversation. It's not as simple as just stop eating meat. <laughs> For many, it's a source of survival. Many parts of the world where people rely on fish to, for their main source of protein. They can't just sort of switch to tofu or quinoa because they don't have access to it. So we have to provide solutions and we have to work with people. And I think listening to you, this is your core point is that yes, of course, we could be vegans. We could all be abolish, abolitionists. What's the word? Abolitionists. Abolitionists. Thank you, Philip. We could all be abolitionists, but we do also have to find a center ground as we move through this challenge because with eight billion people on the planet, we're dealing with so many different cultures and peoples and governments and organizations. We do have to be pragmatic. And I think that's your core message. If we're going to make cha change and we're going to make progress, we have to be as pragmatic and realistic as possible. We want things to happen and change tomorrow, but it is ultimately up to individuals to make those changes. And we have to inspire people and help them understand that change is possible and that each of us do hold power. Because I think that's a big kind of feature in, in my work and my time involved in this movement is trying to get people to realize that as individuals, they hold great power, not just within their own choices, but their ability to inspire others. And it's like a, that Buddhist saying, the light of a single candle can light the candles of billions. That light can be transferred from one person to the other. It's the idea and the, the vision, seeing our world, that it, a world where we can enjoy great food and, and not feel like we are at a disadvantage and also enjoy all our cultural traditional dishes and our festivals 
in a way that is unchangeable. Cultured meat, for example, could do that for us. It could give us a world where people can eat as much meat as they want, health aspects aside, their choice is to eat that product and enjoy everything they want to enjoy. And there's no animal suffering. There's no environmental degradation. Obviously, it's a few years away and we've still a lot of work to do to get that to market. started seeing this really strange thing. A lot of people say an octopus is like an alien. But the strange thing is, as you get closer to them, you realize that you're very similar in a lot of ways. It's a hard thing to explain, but sometimes you just get a feeling and you know there's something to this creature that's very unusual. There's something to learn here. I had to have a radical change in my life. And the only way I knew to do it was to be in this ocean with her. And then I had this crazy idea. What happens if I just went every day? One such animal product which I want to talk about, which I know Compassion World Farming is campaigning against, is octopus farming. If anyone has watched my octopus teacher on Netflix, you would have absolutely fallen in love with octopi. They are beautiful creatures. They do things that I never knew were possible. So intelligent and smart. And it's put many people off eating octop octopus. But tell us a little bit about what's happening with this new advent of octopus farming and what does it mean for this creature? Well, octopuses are the most remarkable creatures, as we know, eight, eight legs, several hearts, blue-green blood, uh, an ability to uh, camouflage themselves out in the open, to disappear. They're also incredibly smart. If they're, if they're kept in tanks and they take, take, take offense at one of their keepers, they'll squirt at their... Uh, they've also been known to find their way out of, of a tank, go into a neighboring tank, grab a fish, and then get back into their tank and pull the lid back over. Similarly, they can remember several months after being taught how to open a screw-top jar. They are the most incredible creatures, but they're also next on the list for factory farming. And that is why we have to redouble our efforts to end factory farming and to make sure that no other species, no other creatures are subject to the indignity of being crammed and confined. What's happening at the moment, Robbie, is that young octopus are being caught out in the oceans and brought back and reared, ranched, if you like, reared in captivity until... This is quite unnatural for them because they're solitary creatures, aren't exactly. they? Exactly. And they're put into tanks where there's lots of them in, a, as you say, a very sterile, unnatural condition. What farmers are, what the livestock industry is doing is trying to find ways of getting octopus to breed in captivity uh, and to farm them. We've been, Compassion in World Farming has been taking up the cudgels. We've been leading a campaign, a, a global campaign to stop this tragedy from unfolding. We've succeeded in getting the first octopus farm in the US on Hawaii to be shut down. We are currently focusing on trying to stop the first European farm in the Canary Islands. So a lot to be done. CIWF.org is where you can learn more about that campaign. So do join us, do mobilize as much energy as we can to stop these incredible creatures going down that 
awful factory farm route. What's the difference between factory farmed pigs and factory farmed octopus? Because obviously both equally intelligent creatures, pigs are very smart. Some Many people say much smarter than dogs in the way they reason and understand. Is it a case that because these factory farm systems are already in place and quite a challenge to, to reverse, and because octopus farming has only just begun, it's much easier to sort of try and educate people before it becomes an established industry? The answer to that is yes. So going back to your original question, what's the difference between an octopus and a pig? Nothing. They're both sentient creatures that shouldn't be subject to a life of suffering. It's as simple as that. The difference here and now is that octopus are, are not subject to widespread farming, whereas pigs absolutely are in the most incredibly cruel conditions. So stopping new creatures being pulled into that black hole uh, of food uh, and reducing the suffering of the animals that are trapped in that system. And I say again, we have to, as passionate pragmatists that want to help animals here and now, we, we have to recognize that there are more people eating more meat than ever before. We've got to turn that around, yes, and in doing that turning around, we've got to reduce the suffering and take as many animals out of those conditions as we possibly can. Mm, absolutely. You talked about um, the campaign that uh, Compassion is running for uh, um, octopus farming. What other campaigns have you been running and what are some of the successes that you can talk about? Give us a little summary uh, of, of the years that you've been at Compassion and World Farming. What kind of change have you seen? Our biggest success so far has been a campaign called End the Cage Age. It's a Europe-wide campaign where we've been calling on the European Commission to legislate to ban all cages for animals farmed for food. We got more than a million signatures on something called the European Citizens Initiative, which is a legally prescribed petition site. 170 organisations were involved in the coalition. Before this, I didn't know there were 170 organisations in Europe campaigning for an end to factory farming. But we came together. Compassion was the leader in bringing those organisations together. The outcome is that the European Commission has promised to put forward legislation to ban all animals, all cages for animals farmed for food. The next three years of process will be the litmus test. We've got to make sure that uh, we hold them to it. But we've seen a ban on barren battery cages. We've seen a ban on the cruel tethering and caging of pregnant pigs. We've seen a ban on veal crates, premature coffins for calves where the animals can't turn around throughout their six-month life. Those have been banned. We've got the European Union to recognise animals as sentient creatures. And again, uh, talking about solutions begin with recognition getting animals recognised for the living, thinking, feeling creatures that they are is a precursor to big change. So momentum is building, Robbie. Momentum for change. Put that together with the increasing joining of the dots that actually this is about stopping animal cruelty, but it's also about saving the future for our own kind. Put those two together uh, and we've got, I think, the most compelling reason to look to a future with hope, a future without factory farming, a future without this overwhelmingly destructive reliance on animal products, a future where 
animals and people, wild, domesticated, and humanity can live in harmony. Amazing. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're vegan. If I could give you one vegan dish, one music artist, and uh, one book, what would you take with you? Vegan dish, I would probably have a vegan lasagna book. What book would I take? Ring of Bright Water about otters. I love otters. <laughs> Music artist, all day long, I would take Mike Peters from The Alarm, which is uh, a post-punk band from the 80s. 68 Guns Will Never Die. Totally believe it. Philip Limbury, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. A pleasure to hear a bit of your story and learn more about your amazing mission. Robbie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next week with more veganism, food, fashion, animals, technology, and everything in between.